Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. And we are live. And once again, I am super thrilled to host the wonderful Shelley R. Johannes. This time yeah. I know I know that it's Johannes and yes. not Johannes. You promised to ask your parents. It I mean they say it's Johannes. Mm-hmm. Okay, if they say that it's Johannes, then and they know. And uh, I remember the R stands for Renee. Yes, it does. Okay, you shouldn't tell me these things because then I go ahead and di- divulge them. Yes, not ma- um, in fact, I don't, I don't think many people know that. <laughs> well, now lots of people do. But that's, yeah, that's breaking gonna, news. That's not going to stop you from sharing this, is it? No. Okay, great. So, hello, everybody. I'm Mel Rosenberg for the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And I have the great honor of hosting the multi-author, multi-talented, multi-wonderful person, Shelley Johannes, and we are here to celebrate your new book, She Persisted, Florence Nightingale, uh, which is incredible. You're going to tell us all about that um, from the series that uh, involves um, uh, Chelsea Clinton. Mm -hmm. And even though you've had a wonderful mega career, this is a huge feather in your cap. So uh, welcome, Shelley. Tell us about the book. Tell us about what happened. And then I'm going to ask you some questions because we talked Seven months ago, you brought up some really interesting things that we should be Uh-oh. discussing. Yeah. Uh oh. <laughs> now, now, wonder what I said. Um, I, I, don't worry, I'll tell you. Okay, okay. <laughs> and then I'll deny, deny, deny. It's on. Uh, uh, Florence Nightingale came about. It actually was um, interesting because I had read an article that, uh, and and my editor at the time. Uh, Jill Santopolo, uh, who was the editor over Theo Thesaurus, had been interviewed and was talking about how they were moving Chelsea Clinton's picture book series into a chapter book series. So I had emailed my agent at the time. I have a new agent since then and had said, hey, I've worked with Jill. Is she taking names? I would I would be very interested in, in doing this. And she said, you know, the series usually leans towards bigger authors, you know, like Andrea Pickney, Meg Medina. And she said, but I'll see if I can throw your name in the hat. So they they threw my name in the hat and literally, you know, she was like, stay tuned. And then six weeks later, we get an email that is, you know, we're, we're thinking about doing Florence Nightingale for um, to celebrate International uh, like Nurses Day. Um, and would Shelley be interested because she's been writing STEM books and we feel like it would be a good fit. So that was how it, that was how it got started. I just asked to throw my name in the hat and it got thrown so in. You're a persister. I am. I am. She persisted. That and, is me. Yeah. And, and I think that um, you're not a small name anymore, dear. You know, really? And, yeah, first of all, you, you're back on my show. That must mean something. Right. To somebody. Yes, I'm a second. Secondly, secondly 
Uh, we talked last time about your two Theo Thesaurus books, which I love, the picture books, and your CC Love Science, which you have now, I don't know, nine or ten books out already and more coming. We and have eight you- out. We have eight. This is the last one that came out. Eight out. And and right now, one more coming, but we're hoping that there'll be more. Yeah. And and, and your four or five books, of which you sold 250,000 copies online. My self-published. Yeah, those are my self-published yeah. books. Which made you a, a self-published millionaire. And, <laughs> no. <laughs> and, 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 you know, how many people can say that? Well, thank and, you. And you're kind and generous and funny. So Aww, e- enough accolades. Yes. So what is the book? What's in the book? Why is the book so, special? Yeah, I think Florence Nightingale is special because she was one of the first pioneers in nursing. And it was at a time in the 1800s where you know, it was very male dominated, um, male doctors and nurses were actually looked upon as really lower class citizens. Um, what I love about Florence is that she came from a very wealthy family who wanted to marry her off and, and, you know, brought her to the biggest parties and, you know, taught her how to sew. And she learned like five languages. Um, you know, girls were not going through education at the time. So her father educated her at home. But she just had a calling that she wanted to be a nurse and her family was very against it. So they had a very kind of, you know, I guess, tough relationship because she was constantly wanting to be a nurse and they were constantly wanting her to not be a nurse because at the time they were looked down upon. And she just, you know, she secretly went to hospitals when she was traveling to, talk with nuns and at, at churches and to talk with people about nursing um, behind her parents' backs. And not that I'm, you know, promoting going against your parents. However, I think it was just, um, you know, a testament to her and just how much she really felt like she needed to go into this field. Um, in that process, she met someone, uh, Sydney, and he was the war, uh, the secretary of war. And she really impressed him. And he ended up giving her a position in the Crimean War. Um, And she went there and was looked down upon. The doctors wouldn't speak to her. You know, the soldiers really wouldn't speak to her at first, but she saw how bad the environment was and started making small changes that we use today. So she's responsible for the nurse call bell. She's responsible for sanitation and really changed... um, the healthcare system for Britain because she brought that death toll from 40% down to 2% within six months. So um, her, the things that she put in place there, you know, eventually got back to the queen and she became a really prominent figure in transforming the healthcare system across Great Britain. So um, yes, a a remarkable, remarkable woman. Um, Two things struck me. Uh, and 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 I read your book, and then I read a little bit more about Florence Nightingale because I come from the healthcare community, and uh, I should have known more. Um, so, did she ever get married? She did not. Exactly. So, um, this is one of the interesting things that she. I, I'm thinking that this was also one of her, you know, the same way that some people pursue a calling because they don't want to have a family life, and right. she saw something that was for her much greater. Mm -hmm. The the second thing that really interested me was the comparison that I made 
between Florence Nightingale and Ignis Semmelweis, uh, who taught similar things. Uh, but um, he, you know, when we talk about hygiene and we talk about performing uh, hospitals and uh, sanitation, uh, we always talk about Florence. Uh, and part of it was because, I think, she was such a charming individual. She was a she was a hard nose too. I mean, she was you know really persistent, and even when she went into the hospitals with all the male doctors, I mean, she, it just didn't phase her. Like she had been so used to meeting people throughout her life through her parents and going to adult parties, and that she was able to kind of you know work her way through that system. And so she was a tough bird. I mean, she lived to be about ninety. Um, she did catch the Crimean fever when she was over in Crimea. And once she came back and had gotten the merit of honor from Great Britain and some other awards and, and really helped reform. I mean, she really was bedridden for the last like 30 years of her life. But, um, but do you think that she was um, a, a charming person? I'm uh, sure she had to be very charismatic to get through. That, that, so that, yeah. that's that's my guess, uh, especially yeah. what she had to go through in her life and also being a woman and and really being chronically ill and, yep. and overcoming all of these things. Whereas Semmelweis probably um, was not that charming of an individual by, by accounts. And um, he had a hard time because um, he wasn't nice, perhaps. Right. Um, the other thing that I'm... I'm reading into this uh, is that she was she must have been a great storyteller. Yeah, I mean, she wrote thousands of letters. I mean, she she documented everything. I think thirteen thousand letters um, from the time she was very very young, all the way until the end of her life. So um, she would write letters to the queen, write letters to parliament, write letters to government officials, trying to get inf you know trying to get supplies sent to the war um, and and really try, and, and not just about the war, but really creating a training center for nurses so that women could be upheld in society as nurses, that they were, you know, not seen as lower class citizens and, and got the proper training. Um, so I'm sure that, you know, she had to have a level of charisma and probably did and, and learned that through her, you know, her being around her parents. I mean, I would, I would guess. Yeah, absolutely, and and perhaps her her uh, very high level upbringing, right? Um, as you know, an, an aristocratic uh, British family, um, and um, so you know, I'm I'm always thinking that uh, if you're a good storyteller, then uh, life comes uh, easier for you. Yes. Um, human beings are storytellers, and if you're good at that, then um, you can succeed in many uh, areas. Um, so. Do you want to read any any few lines from the book, Shelley? Sure. Show us anything. Yeah, I can it's read. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful book. Thank you. What I really love about this persisted series is that you really, you know, get a chance to see um, Florence when she was younger and kind of what she was excited about and how that led to her really being a female hero. And there were many, many nurses, um, you know, that. Clara Barton, Mary Siebold, I mean, that had really made a difference in nursing. But for Great Britain, it was Florence Nightingale. Um, but just the fact that it, it really tells kids that, you know, you don't have to look at a hero and think it's a hero. A hero starts out as a regular person, just like all of us, and they follow their passion. And it leads to 
heroism in whatever way that it does. And so I love this series because you really get to experience Florence as a child and you can kind of see what, what her path was and how it led her towards, you know, I guess her calling. So, um, so I'll read the first chapter. So it was a girl who loved math. Florence Nightingale never wanted to be a proper lady. While some girls enjoyed sewing, Florence loved math, but that was just the beginning. Florence became a pioneer in nursing and one of the most famous nurses of all. She developed many of the hygiene procedures we use today, such as washing hands, wearing masks, and keeping hospitals clean. But for all she would do in her life, Florence's road to becoming a nurse wasn't easy. Florence Nightingale was born in Florence, Italy on May 12, 1820. Her sister was only a year old at the time. Their English parents were on a three-year honeymoon around Europe when the girls were born. Because the Nightingales loved Italy so much, they named the girls after Italian cities. Florence and Pop, which is um, what Florence called her, lived a very privileged life. Her father, William, was a wealthy banker and politician, and Frances, her mother, was a true socialite. Frances loved throwing fancy parties and inviting those she considered to be the brightest minds of the time. They also had many visits from family and friends. No matter who showed up, Frances encouraged her daughter to mingle. The Nightingale... Nightingales lived in two different houses throughout the year. The houses were so big, they even had their own names. In the winter, the Nightingales lived in their estate at Embley Park, located south of London. The mansion had many bedrooms and sat on five square miles of beautiful countryside. And in the summer, the family moved north to their country home, Leehurst. Lawrence loved her time at Leehurst. Her house sat at the beautiful edge of a village overlooking rolling hills and sloping meadows. And she enjoyed wandering through the gardens and reading. Um, what I want to get to is... You know, when Florence was young, most girls were not allowed to attend school or receive an education, but Florence's father knew his daughters were smart, so he educated them at home. As she grew older, her education stopped. Her life became filled with social events and parties, but she wasn't happy with this lifestyle. Later writing, why have women passion, intellect, and moral activity, these three together, and a place in society where none of the three can be exercised? Her relationship with her mother wasn't easy and at the same and the same was true for her relationship with her sister. Flo wondered how she could be in the same family yet be so different. Pop loved the life of a Victorian woman and spent her time with Fanny in the drawing room, polishing silverware and setting a proper table. Even though Florence wanted her mother's approval, she knew that life was that life was not for her. Flo wanted something more. So I skipped around a little bit, but it gives you a little taste of you know, kind of the privileged life that she had, but that something was always missing. And this is when she's, you know, five, six, seven, eight, like this is, um, so a lot of kids that I read, you know, this to are third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, same age. And, you know, maybe they're finding a way, you know, something that they love that they don't really see as a career or something that they can make a difference in. Incredible. Yeah. And, um, you know, this is uh, one of the things that you're passionate about is uh, empowering your girls. Yes. To be scientists, to be innovative. And uh, that's wonderful. Um, now, uh, I want to segue to a couple of very interesting things you said seven months ago in our last okay. interviews. I, I want to remind you. Um, okay. and, and that is, um, as a writer, um, that you should also write to the markets. Um, after I keep telling people, hold on, uh, write to your passion, write to your passion, write to your heart, write from your heart, write about the things you believe in. And then comes very hyper successful you and says, um, 
part of my success is because I'm a marketing person. I have a master's in marketing and I'm always have in my mind what the market is looking for. So how do we overcome this apparent dichotomy? And then I'm going to tell you something interesting. Um, I mean, I think that I, I don't think they're separate. I think you can, you know, I don't go out in the market and go, oh, somebody is looking for a book in, you know, washing dishes. I'm going to write a book about washing dishes. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I always keep, I always look at the market and I really try to see publishing as a business because I think as writers, there's like two hats, right? We have the writing side and then there's the business side. And I really try to keep those two things separate. So when I'm writing, I'm just writing from my heart something that I love. Um, for example, you know, Florence Nightingale, that that's kind of one of those things like writing to the market. I saw the, I saw the article, saw something in it that I felt like touched my heart. It wasn't just something because I thought I could make money. I really believe in the series. I believe in teaching young girls to follow their dreams. And I love that women have always done that and that we are showcasing that. So that was me kind of putting my name in the hat. And that was something that, you know, it was an article that was in the market of what was coming up. So that's kind of what I mean by you can write to the market. I don't think you can write to the market and not love what you're doing. Um, I think some people do that. They'll go out there and look, oh, the Titan submarine is so hot right now. I'm going to write a thriller about, you know, sea exploring. You know, like, I don't think... But they don't. But they don't love what they're doing. They're just creating that because they're trying to make money and they're trying to kind of get published. I don't think that works because I think the intention behind what you're writing and just that energy behind it that you put out is what's going to bring something back. Does that make sense? So yeah. I think they can be balanced. I, I don't want people to think that I'm saying write to the market. I think it's we have to be smart about what we write, and um, but we have to love what we write. Okay. So um, I before we had this interview seven months ago, um, I thought that, and I taught that writing for the market is not a good idea because it doesn't bring out your, your creativity. And the moment you say, oh, you know, um, well, because I'm Jewish, I can write stories about Hanukkah and I can, uh, you know, send them to a Jewish publishers. Um, so what can I write about a, uh, a latke, if you know what a latke is? I don't um, actually. It's it's like it's a pancake. It's exactly oh, okay. a pancake with potatoes, um, right, okay. which Jewish people call the latke. Got so it. you know the latke that wanted to be a um, you know a car racer. I don't know what it, <laughs> the book might get published, but it's always going to be uh, when you read it, you'll say, "Oh, this is somebody who um, who wrote to the market." Um, and then after your interview, it happened to me. I, I hope in a good way, <laughs> because I I resolved not to write stuff on Jewish topics, because that for me is writing to my mark, right? Mm -hmm. um, but after our conversation, I had an idea, and I, I wrote a uh, a manuscript on a Jewish topic, and it's not bad. So may, maybe you are right after all. In other words. Um, Maybe you do have to have both hats. But when when I look at the, uh, the your books, which I'm most in love with, with which are the Theothesaurus ones, um, these were ones from the heart. These were ones that grew out of your your son using big words, um, yes. if I remember. Um, it wasn't like uh, the world needs more books on big words, was it? Right. No, mm -mm, not at all. Mm -mm. It was just a, a something he said that 
you know, you, you get that feeling. Some, someone says something or you see something and it just goes, you go, huh? Like it's that extra little thought that you put towards it. So, so maybe we should have the market somewhere in the back of our heads, you know, find something really cool to write about. And then if there is a market, I don't know, continue with the drafts. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. I mean, for example, like our love science, when I, when I came up that with that idea, you know, my daughter said one day, you know, science was for boys when I was trying to get her to go into a science camp. And I kind of thought, wow, like, is that, how did she get to that? Because, you know, we are a science family. And then I kind of went out and said, are there, are we writing science books for girls? You know, like, so I kind of go out, look at the market. And at the time people are talking about STEM for women. It's a big topic that's, you know, in the news, you're hearing about it. Um, and so I thought, you know, what if I took a fancy Nancy and wrote a fancy Nancy for science? So that was me kind of looking at the market, you know, um, this was before Andrea Beatty's, uh, Ada Twist series was that that was probably just, you know, getting ready to hit as far as Rosie Revere. So, but other than that, she was really the only one at the time that we started writing. This was like 2013, I think was the first time that we really thought about it. And we sold it in 2015. It came out 2018. So, you know, it was, that's what I mean by writing to the market, but it was something that I loved. I, I wouldn't go out and find, you know, something that I didn't love, but I definitely looked to see what were some comps, how were they doing? Had this been done? How could I do it differently? That's kind of what I mean by looking at the market instead of just sitting down and writing a book. Like I, I could, it's, I kind of thought through where would this fit in the market? Mm -hmm. um, so that's kind of what I mean, but so I do maybe, think a lot of yeah. self-published authors find a topic that's hot. Like, like I said, for example, you know, Titan right now with the the sea explorer I, I i know someone's out there probably writing some kind of adult sea explorer thriller under seas you know because that's a hot topic and they can get it out really quickly they can write it and do that process and have it out in, in you know probably by christmas and it would still be newsworthy and 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 kind of focus on the topics that we've been discussing about ocean exploring so um that's kind of what i mean but i don't think you can write something without passion and a love for it. I don't, I don't think it come, it'll come out flat on the page, I think. Mm -hmm. There's another thing, you know, uh, agents want authors who are market savvy. They will often ask you, yeah, right? How do you think we should market the book? And I always say to myself, why should I, as an author, worry about that? That's not my job. My job is to write a creative story. And, and, and maybe in today's world, it, it isn't anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to kind of know the business side of publishing. And at least, I don't, I don't think you have to think about that while you're writing. Um, like I, I try to say, you know, write with your creative mind. Don't worry about the market while you're writing, right? Like, because that's just going to mess your head up. But once you write and you feel like you have a good story, you know, kind of look at the market and then, mm -hmm. then kind of flip over to the business side and think about, you know, mm -hmm. where does this fit? How can I push this? So, 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 so write creatively and then, and then tweak. Um, I just think it's, you, you can't write while you're thinking about the business of writing. Cause you'll get in your head and you'll be like, that's, oh my that's God. what, that's what I'm saying. But we just it's, said that you have to think about the business. You do. I think like when I get, before I get started, I try to think about where do I want this to go? But while I'm sitting down and having that moment of just love and creativity, I don't want to stop and go, 
is the market going to like this? You know what I'm saying? Like, is this what I should be writing? Like, I don't want to think about that while I'm writing it. So uh, I've already gone through the thought process before. It's like, I write. Yeah. It's like, it's like eating a, uh, a a cream uh, cake and knowing it's bad for you and eating it anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you, you write from the heart, but somewhere in your head, there's a little bird telling you, remember, somebody has to buy the book. Right. Um, so, so, which is a perfect segue to self-publishing um, because um, people like me who look at writing for children as a calling rather than as a business mm -hmm. say it's perfectly all right to self-publish a wonderful book, especially if it doesn't have a market. There's, there's a yeah. lot of topics and, and, and books that don't have, that don't have markets. Yeah, I love self-publishing. I'm totally behind self-publishing if it's done the right way. Okay, so so a few words about the right way because I was in favor of self-publishing and then I was against it. And you know, we have a website with over a quarter of a million self-published ebooks. So I should be in favor. And then I went back to looking at my own writing career and I followed the traditional path. Um, and then I met you. Um, see see if we can clarify a few things. Okay. You start. Okay. Uh, I don't know where was there a question <laughs> um, for self-publishing. I think that I you want, think do you want the, do you want the question? No, I got it. I think it's um, a valuable and a um, it, it's it's a it's a good path. It is one path to publishing. I think when I was self-publishing, there was a big stigma around it. I mean, I had a really hard time with my community, with organizations I belonged to. Um, and was kind of looked down upon. And the the series that I did had gone through, like we tried to sell it traditionally, but the, the what was coming back was we don't think teen girls like the outdoors. Like that was kind of why it wasn't selling. Um, and mine was a wilderness thriller. So, but I know that there are people that like that. Again, it's a marketing thing. It's being turned away. Right. Not right. because your manuscript isn't wonderful. It's because, oh, I'm not sure we can sell it. Right. So it had been vetted, like it had gone through agents. I had an agent at the time. Um, and so I just decided to put it out myself. I thought it would be fun. And I felt like the story needed to be out there. So, um, you know, I made sure I did it the right way. I had it edited. I went through the process. I think self-publishing, we have to look at it as a... a, a quick path to publishing, but it's not a shortcut to writing. I don't know if that makes sense, but so it doesn't, the quality of writing should not be compromised in, in my mind. Um, you know, some people who are just chunking out books and they're not editing them and they're not thinking about, you know, the jacket copy, or they're not thinking about the cover and they're just throwing it out there. I think those, those are the indie authors who are kind of giving it a bad rap. You know what I'm saying? Um, they're spelling errors. They don't get it copy edited. I mean, just those kinds of things. So I think if you do it the right way, self-publishing is a valid path. And um, I love it. I, I'm, I have a book I'm working on now. I'm going to self-publish again. So, and I'm actually just recovered that series and I'm just getting ready to put those new covers up just to see if I can kind of reinvent the series. So I think it's a fun thing to dabble with, especially if you find that you write fast and you write a lot. Um, and one thing with my agent, I always say is, you know, is this something I can self-publish or is this something that you want? 
So that's kind of me thinking about the market. Like I, I'm writing this, is this something that you would like to sell? If not, then I'd love to self-publish it. And you know, my agent doesn't care as long as I let her know. And I'm obviously not in any kind of competitive clause. You know, I'm not going against any competitive clause. Yeah, but, but Shelly, uh, again, uh, you are a uh, spectacular lady. Uh, oh, you, you have a you have a market a marketing a master's degree in marketing. Yes. And uh, people like me who self publish are either going to give the books away so that people will read them, uh, or sell them for a dollar and have maybe fifty or hundred people read them. And because I um, my genre is particularly picture books, I see a lot of novices. Mm-hmm. Um, spending fortunes. This includes me. I, you know, I have a a garage full of uh, of books that I didn't sell. Uh, so you hire a um, an illustrator, either a wonderful one or a less wonderful one, <laughs> and um, you think you're going to sell thousands of books, um, and you make a lot of mistakes, yep. and um, you end up really with uh, losing. Ten or twenty thousand dollars, and they uh, and sometimes an inferior product. Yeah, that's yeah, that's not that's not the ideal way of self-publishing, is it? No, but how did you how did you overcome not giving yourself um, the shortcut treatment? You know, saying okay, I can write, and I know this is good, but I still need a copy editor. I still need a content editor. I still need a jacket editor. Yeah, I mean, I wanted, it was, you know, it was, it was a series I had worked on for so long that I wanted it out. And I wasn't, I didn't really put it out thinking, oh, how much money am I going to make? I really put it out in, I want this book out there. And if it's out there and my name is on it, I want it to be the best book that it can be. But you sold a quarter of a million copies. How did you do I, that? That's e-books, incredible. E-books. E-books. It doesn't matter. Okay, I'm. I'm just saying. I just want to clarify. It was not paperbacks. It was ebooks. Ebooks um, are also copies. PDFs are copies. Yes, ebooks. About two hundred fifty thousand ebooks of the series. Yeah. Yep. I, and I, well, one. I think it came out at a time in September in 2011 that the self-publishing was just starting. Um, so I think that was one of the things. So and and because I had a photographer that did the cover. Um, I think it stood out against the self-publishing books that were being done at the time. Um, I'm not sure that would happen now. I don't know. Um, we'll see because I'm going to put, you know, some other books out. But I do think that I spent time up front and I spent the money up front, but I didn't, I didn't waste money. Like I wasn't going to, you know, I wanted to do it smart. So I think if you are self-publishing, I think the best way to do it is to do it right and to start with eBooks. We all like to have the paperbacks, but the paperbacks aren't selling. So we don't want to keep paperbacks like stocked in our house and not have those. And then we're just handing them out and we're spending the money on them. Ebooks are not, you know, once you put them up, there's not really an effort or a monetary effort assigned to them. So I think most of those copies, like 95% of those copies were eBooks. So I think most people who are self-publishing indie probably sell more eBooks than paperback. So I would say start there. Um, so you're not spending all the money on the paperback because that's the one that really sucks you dry, right? Um, Especially if it's a picture book and it's hardcover. Picture book, is a, that, that's a tough one to self-publish because of the illustration side of it. No, but it's because a- why I, I rail against people who go this route without knowing all the dangers. Yeah. Uh, because I've fallen prey 
to everything out there, uh, vanity uh, presses and right. um, you name it. But I think that the biggest problem is being able to accept critiques and 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 editing, and not to argue with the editor. Hey, you know, I'm paying for this. This is my book. I don't need you. I know better than you do. Chapter four is stained. Right. Well, that happens in traditional and self-publishing, right? I mean, any editor, you're going to get feedback. I mean, I go through more edits, you know, with my traditional stuff than I do with my self-publishing stuff because it's the agent, multiple edits there, critique partner, multiple edits there, editor, multiple edits there. Yeah, but so, if, you're, if you're working with the, with the top editor from Philomel, as you often have, uh, you're going to um, bow to their... Um, wisdom very often right. whereas if you're hiring somebody at least from my point of view um you know sometimes you'll say well you know i like this chapter and it's my chapter and it's my book have yeah nice i mean day. you have to make those decisions but i would say that's why it's better to spend money on an editor that you trust as opposed to the cheapest editor because the yeah, cheapest but, editor, you're just going to let it go but if it's yeah. someone yeah but i mean so, in order to trust an editor you have to be willing even though you're paying yes. for everything Right. To say, okay, I don't agree. It's my book and I'm paying, but I'm still going to, uh, you know, to defer to your, to your judgment. Yeah. That's um, where your good check, I think, comes in. Yeah. So, so, mm -hmm. so you have to have a certain amount of belief in yourself, persistence, but also to believe that you can also be better. Yeah. And I think the traditional publishing forces us to become better and better. That's my mm -hmm. opinion. Yes. Um, but my last question for you today, because I also want to interview you next year when more books come out, because it's so much fun, is um, Shelley, you've you've really hit a stand-up home run in this field. You've published young adult and middle grade and uh, picture books, and uh, and now uh, with your wonderful new book, uh, she persisted, uh, Florence Nightingale. You have tons of experience, and you're young, and you have the success with independent uh, self-publishing. Mm -hmm. I think that you should have your own publishing house. What do you think? <laughs> I, I think that would be way too much time to be taking away from my writing. Uh, I think I would have been a good agent in, in, a, in another life. I think I, I would have been a good agent that, you know, could have helped balance those two. Um, and, but like, you know, one of my friends, um, colleagues, Zibby book, I mean, Zibby Owens is a, um, podcaster and she just started her own publishing company and they're doing, I think a book, a book a month and she's doing an amazing job. I, the work that goes into it, it, it I don't think I could do that level of work for other people's books. I struggle to do that level of work for my own. Right. So my passion is writing. I just want to write. I think I like to write across different genres. I think I just, if a whim catches me and it's a chapter book, I write it. I don't really think about, you know, should I be selling picture books? I just go with my heart. And I think that's where the gut check comes in with editing. That's where the gut check comes in with your ideas, like what sticks with you, like what you kind of have to just know that feeling in your gut. So when I get edits back, I'll be able to say, I always ask the question, am I going to die? One of my friends does this, Kim Dirting. She always says, are we going to die on this hill? Like if my editor comes back and says, you know, change this, 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 and this. Am I going to die on this hill? Not a big change. Okay. Am I going to die on this hill? No. Am I going to die on this hill? I don't, I need to think about this one because your immediate response is no. 
right? Because you don't want to do the work. So I try to think about what are the things that I'm getting that kind of reaction to and why, and then do I need to change it or do I not? So I don't think you have to change everything, um, but I think we have to trust the people who are editing us. And if we don't trust them, we shouldn't be working with them. Um, but there's a lot of things that come back in editing that it's not a hill you're going to die on, right? Like you kind of get that feeling like, no, 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 no. But then you really have to kind of step back and be like, wait, this isn't big. This is small. I can do this. This is good. And then kind of wait for those nuggets. Then you can go back to your editor and say, I've done all these, but these two things I'm concerned about. Here's why I've thought through the process. I've taken in your, your comments and here's why I don't think I should do them. Can we discuss? So I think trying to resist that urge because I think we all get it. The minute we get feedback, it's like, because we don't want to work anymore. We want to get the book out. We want to move on to the next thing. It really comes down to, do we want to do the work? But it's also a matter of ego, isn't it? Yeah, and I think I am someone who um, has, I, I've grown up in a very critical family, so I'm used to criticism. It doesn't bother me. It just kind of makes me try to figure out, like, how can I get past this? Um, I always want to be better in my craft. So if there's something that I can learn, I think that's great. Um, and I don't know, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me on the level that I think some people are bothered by. That That's kind of my business hat is, okay, this is a business. And if they think this book should be, I wrote a thriller and, and it's not out yet, but I wrote a thriller and my agent had come back and said, I love the premise. I love the concept. I love your voice, but these two characters, there's a problem with them. And, and I'm not excited about your setting. I think you should take this thriller and set it in Georgia where you, where you live. And it would be much more interesting as kind of a Southern thriller. And I was like, what? I mean, that's huge, right? That's a whole different setting. That's my entire book. But she's right, like from a market perspective, the setting that I had chosen in a boarding school, you know, in Washington, DC, like has been done. So there's not really a place for it if I want it to come out. And so, you know, I'm trying to rewrite it as a Southern book. So, I mean, and that's a big change. So I think you just have to step back and think about it and make that decision for yourself. Absolutely. And uh, yeah. so, uh... I'm just going to mention Harold Underdown, whom uh, we both love. Yes. Um, and uh, people don't realize how important editors are, uh, not only for the changes that they make, but the changes they don't make. Right. Um, I, um, Harold and oh, and I would, I would love to work for Harold at, I think he's at Astra now. I would love yeah. because he's such a King. good editor. He's Such a good editor. editor. I've, used hey. him a, I've used him a couple well, of times. What well, you can, you know, you can uh, sub, you can submit to him. You know, he has. A, oh yeah. And I, I uh, would urge you to do that. Um, I so um. I I wanted to mention that sometimes editors do the greatest thing of all when they say to you, "Something is missing in your story," mm -hmm. and then you say. Well, what do you mean? You know, this is my 142nd version of this, right? Right. And they say, yeah, but the, the, something, the ending doesn't seem to be over. And you say, what? Yeah. But if you're able after a day or two <laughs> to say, hmm. So the, the, the best editing work that I've had on my manuscripts 
is not when the editors, you know, they cross things out or whatever, nor right. when they tell you that this should be in Ontario and not in Israel. Mm -hmm. But when they say, Mel, I think something is missing here. Right. Those are hard comments, too, because you don't know what to do with them. I, those are the ones I love. Yeah. I mean, I, no, 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 no. Those are the ones I hate. You hate, hate them when hate, you're no, but hate, 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 hate. And then you figure out what's missing. And yeah. then you lo love. And then you go. So my first published book, Untraceable, um, didn't sell. And I will say, embarrassingly enough, now when I look back at the original version, um, it was very based on, I don't, I don't want to, it was, it was right after, right? September 11th. So the concept was very based on terrorist cells and where they were hiding. Uh, I had them hiding in the wilderness. Um, the, it didn't sell because I think a lot of people were like, mm, I don't think girls are interested in the wilderness and, you know, terrorist cells in the woods, <laughs> which sounds bad when I say it now, but at the time I thought, I thought it was brilliant. Um, cause they were finding different cells in different places at that time. And I had one editor that I hired after it didn't sell. And she came back and said, it's, it's the terrorist cell thing. Like you've got to think of another way. And so I researched and researched and researched and thought of poaching and it kind of led me down a completely different path. I was willing to do that. If I had stuck, to, if I had been like, no, I'm doing terrorist cells. This is how it started. But if people are saying, ah, we're just not feeling this, it doesn't feel like it's grounded. We're not sure this is a topic for teens then, you know, if enough people say it, you kind of have to listen at some point. So I wrote, rewrote that whole book with a completely different an antagonist group that I think is, I look back now and I'm like, thank goodness I did not put that original version out. Like it's so much better. Um, but it's because of that editor that just really pushed back and said, there's got to be not, don't write the whole, like we love the environment, but there's got to be another issue that teens care about um, than terrorist cells, you know, hiding in the mountains. Hey, the, the, from, the, from the Kenny Rogers song, you have to know when to hold them and when to fold them. Right. Um, because in my scientific career, you know, that you have to listen to people, but sometimes you have to go with your own, you know, uh, you have to persevere, you have to persist. Yeah. Um, and ignore all the naysayers. Um, right. And it's just a matter of knowing when, you know, when to climb the hill and when to say, oh, oh no, no, no. Yeah. Thanks, and to be things. open. I'm going to I'm going to die on that one. Yeah. You have to trust the process, I guess, is part of it. Yeah. And most of the time. And, yeah. And know, and know when when not to trust it. Right. Shelly, any other wonderful pieces of advice? Um, it's very rare that I have an interview with somebody and then I go and behave differently uh, as a Aww. result. This, is, this happened uh, following our conversation. Um, one or two ideas for uh, aspiring and perspiring authors um, that you'd like to share. Um, I think in this market, you have to find a way to stand out, whether that's with your voice, whether that's with your idea. Um, and so if you find an idea, like how can you make it the most different of anything that's out there? And I think that is kind of 
what this, what the hard part is right now is, you know, every story has been done, but how, how do you tell a story and how is it different? My unicorn book, um, you know, I, I asked my editor, like, why did you pick up another unicorn book? Right? Like unicorn books are everywhere. And she said it was you, but this is your perspective on a unicorn book that I, that is different from all the other ones out there. It was a unique corn. It was a unique corn. And it was funny and it was humorous and it was a little bit different, a little bit quirky. And so I think that, that I, I try to take that into all my books. Like, how do I make this book different from anything that's out there? And that's why I say, think about the market because I didn't want, I wanted to write a unicorn book and, but I didn't want to write one that had already been written. Um, so I wanted to write my own, a different one. And I, but I need, in order to write my own, I needed to know what was out there. Yeah, but sometimes people will say, you know, there's so many unicorn books, uh, write a, write a GNU book. Right. Yeah. Write something but different. You, you, you stuck to your guns and, and you, you know, you succeeded. So, you know, if you, it, sometimes, you know, they say, okay, there aren't, uh, there aren't enough, uh, uh, biographies of, um, gastroenterologists right and then you go True. spend two years and uh, you spill your guts mm-hmm. oh, i don't know That's what's hilarious. happening it's terrible and um and nobody wants a book on on gastroenterologists uh, on the other hand as you've proven um a good book on unicorns that's different is going to sell even though there's a million and everybody's telling you oh don't write a unicorn book yeah, I mean, I think that it, you have to kind of think of it in the she persisted is, you know, if you're going to do, you know, nonfiction and you're writing for kids, what is going to interest a kid? I mean, kids love to talk about poop. So I don't know why there's got to be a way to do a gastro like book that is interesting to kids that talks about poop. Like there just has to be, there has to be someone out there that's interesting to kids. It's just the way you write it. You know, if it's, it's, if it's just a boring one and someone's, you know, I don't know, there has to be something interesting about it. So I would look for a gastroenterologist, like someone who is a little bit more open about how they speak or someone who brought, you know, I don't know. Somebody, the, the, the guy, the guy who invented constipation. Something, there has to be something there. Cause poop is funny. Yeah. I was being facetious and you see, we came up with another idea. And we've gone and shared it with the whole world again. Dar- darn it. So I would look for a gastro and like, I would look for a doctor who is, who is completely different and has kind of something quirky about them that kids will gravitate to, you know, for Florence Nightingale, you know, she collected rocks and, um, you know, sorted them by size and by shape and was very big into statistics. And that kind of led to her later figuring out how to do the Rose diagram and figure out the statistics of who was dying, why they were dying, and realizing that most people were not dying of their wounds. They were dying of, you know, cholera or dysentery. And, and, and being able to use the science and math to tell the story. Right. And that's incredible. So you need to I find mean, a I, I, Yeah, that's the, interesting like that. These rose charts, they tell a story. Yep. So and no, talking- no one could understand those stories. And so visually... That was why she came up with the rose diagram. So she could visually show people, no, mm-hmm. look, I mean, this is what's going on because numbers in a list weren't grabbing people. So she had to think of a different way See? to communicate what was important. We rest our case. Shelly, yes. um, we're uh, running out of time. 
what do you have in the pipeline so that I'll be able to interview you again next year? Yeah. So in 2024, um, I am working on a chapter book series with Kim Durding, um, who also did the Love Science, and it is Farm Friends. So it kind of talks about the science of farms, farm to table. Um, it's about a girl who lives on a sustainable farm and just some of the fun things that that she gets to do on the farm. Um, that's That really is part of our society, making soap, growing things. And so that comes out in 2024. And right now we have six books in that series. Wow. Yeah. We're excited about it. And you've sold them all. Yes, those six are definitely coming out. Um, they're coming out with Capstone. It's adorable. Um, the illustrator has a, adorable illustrations. So it's just kind of a different take on STEM, looking at the agricultural side, um, which I think we take for granted with our food. So I think it, it'll be an interesting, it'll be interesting to see how it's received. But it still falls within my STEM and and kind of, you know, girls learning different things and getting dirty on a farm and um, appreciating you know, where our food comes from. But still, do you have a special love for your fiction? I mean, that is fiction. Or do you mean my, my, or do you mean my thrillers? Well, yeah, no. your thrillers, your thesaurus books, uh, the ones that aren't hardcore science. Yeah, these, so they, they, they sound like they're hardcore science, but they're a little bit more like the love science series. Like they have, they have some stuff in them, but it's really about a girl who lives on a farm and just some of the challenges that farms have. But yes, I mean, I love fiction. I love thrillers. I love adventures. I mean, that's really, you know, Harry Potter is my favorite series of all time. I'm reading it now for the third time. Um, and so I, I would love to get back to novels. That's kind of my pie, like pie in the sky dream moving forward. Is to... There ain't nothing stopping you, dear. Nope. So and, I'm working middle grade. So hopefully that'll I'll move There up. is nothing stopping this remarkable lady. So uh, Shelly Johannes, uh, our second interview was uh, better than the first even. Oh, and wow. It was Thank you. Great, great having you. And I will just say that I am Mel Rosenberg for the Children's Literature Channel of the New Books Network. And I have been hosting the wonderful Shelly Johannes uh, talking about her new book, She Persisted, Florence Nightingale, uh, but also talking about a lot of things related literature and life and Shelly if you come back on we'll we'll say goodbye to everybody come back on and I will tell you a secret oh okay that's awesome I love that thank you for having me again this ah! is one of my favorite favorite interviewers and podcasts so thank you dear so uh bye bye everybody and come back Shelly and we'll share a little secret